Hi, I'm Eric Chaffin, Senior Pastor of Beach Street First Baptist Church in Texarkana. Welcome to The Upward Call, our weekly Beach Street message cast. If this is your first time to connect with us, we invite you to discover more at www.beachstreetfbc.org. Beachstreetfbc.org. Thanks so much for joining us. We pray that today's message will inspire and challenge you as God speaks to you through His Word. Open your Bibles if you would, church. By the way, there's never going to be a time when I stand in the pulpit and, and ever not say, open your Bibles. <laughs> okay? So just get ready. Uh, we're going to be in a couple of different passages this morning. Uh, Matthew chapter 28, also uh, Romans chapter 6. We are picking back up the series we started before the holidays called Stuff Every Christian Should Know. Some of the basics of the Christian life. This morning we're going to be talking about the basics of biblical baptism. We're going to start off in Matthew chapter 28. A little bit later we're going to get over to Romans chapter 6. But while you're turning there, let me tell you, the minister of a church of a different denomination wrote to a pastor of a, law, of, of a very large downtown Baptist congregation sharing that several members of his church preferred to be baptized by immersion uh, rather than by sprinkling, which was his church's usual practice. The minister not only requested use of the downtown church's baptistry, but also requested that the Baptist pastor himself perform the baptisms. Now that posed something of a dilemma. What if those who were coming for baptism weren't actually born again? And since it was the pastor's conviction that only born-again Christians should be baptized, he realized that he could not in good conscience go along with the plan. He did not want to offend the other pastor, but he wrote back, We don't take in laundry, but we'll be happy to loan you our tub. <laughs> so, what is the big deal about baptism anyway? I mean, is it something that's only for adults, or can babies be baptized? You know, is it something that, that includes a thorough dunking, or is sprinkling okay? You know, why would someone even want to be baptized? Does baptism actually save a person, or is it purely a symbol? Well, we're actually going to address some of those questions. Uh, we're going to see what the Scripture has to say about the subject of baptism. Uh, the first one we're going to look at, Matthew chapter 28, verses 19 and 20. Jesus talking to His disciples here says, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe everything that I have commanded you. And remember, I am with you always to the end of the age. Now, most of you who grew up in a Baptist church, you know that we have two ordinances that we observe here pretty regularly. There is communion, also known as the Lord's Supper, which we explored more in depth in a message back in uh, September. And then, of course, there is baptism. And folks, baptism is a beautiful thing. It's one of the most important, most relevant, most meaningful experiences that you can have in the Christian life. Now understand, I am not referring to some Southern Baptist tradition. Okay, I I'm talking about real biblical baptism. You see, baptism is not a purely Baptist doctrine. 
Yes, you know, the, if you study your church history, you know that the Anabaptists of the late 16th and, uh, century, as well as those churches in England in the early 17th, uh, late 16th, early 17th century, that, that, that part of the, the, the uh, separatist movement actually established what would become the Baptist church. Those were all set apart because of their practice of baptism their commitment to believers' baptism. But it's not simply a Baptist doctrine. If believers would just follow the Bible, then when it comes to baptism, we realize that, that with the doctrine of baptism, there is not Baptist doctrine, there's not Catholic doctrine, there's not Methodist doctrine, Wesleyan, Lutheran, uh, Pentecostal, Presbyterian, Episcopalian. There is only Bible doctrine when it comes to baptism. So today we're going to discuss what the Bible has to say about baptism. Not what the church says, what the Bible says. Folks, don't ever fall into the mindset that baptism is somehow unimportant, you know, that it's, it's purely incidental. And before we leave here today, I think we're all going to realize that it's not incidental, that it is in fact fundamental. And we should never minimize something that Jesus maximized. Now think about this. How did Jesus begin his earthly ministry, his three-year ministry on earth? Well, he began by being baptized. How did he conclude his ministry? By commanding that we make disciples and baptize them. So shouldn't Jesus be our example in all things? Let me just get to the good stuff. Three points that I want you to understand. Three specific things about baptism. Okay, number one is the method of baptism. All right, the method of baptism. Now, some people might try to tell you that the Bible teaches multiple modes, multiple methods of baptism, in, including sprinkling or pouring. It doesn't. Okay? Now, some church traditions may teach you that there's multiple methods, but the Bible only teaches one method, and that is immersion, okay? Uh, dunking, to be a little more graphic. Funny story, um, back in the late 17th and early 18th centuries, there was a German Baptist sect that arose called the German Baptist Brethren. But here in the United States, they became more popularly known as the Dunkards, because of their habit of dipping people down into the water. Now, when I was reading about the Dunkards, it reminds me of a guy that I used to work with at, at our last church, a guy named Garrett Gregory. He was our minister to high school students for a number of years. Let me tell you something about Garrett. He baptized with authority, okay? He was serious about his baptism. He was exuberant, almost violent in his baptismal style. You know, he'd have a student there in the baptistry, and I, I baptize you in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, and wham! I mean, just down into the water, big splash everywhere. And I thought to myself, Garrett Gregory must have been a descendant of the Dunkards. But they got that name because they baptized by immersion. There are scriptural examples of this type of baptism, though. You have, first of all, the example of Jesus and John. Uh, Jesus, uh, we read about that in Mark chapter 1, verses 9 and 10. It says that Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee and was baptized in the Jordan by John. As soon as he came up out of the water, he saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. So he was baptized in a river. He was coming up out of the water. 
Now, why did John baptize people there? Well, according to the Gospel of John, uh, chapter 3, verse 23, John baptized there because, and I quote, there was plenty of water. Now, wouldn't it be more convenient to do it another way? Well, sure. But you see, baptism is not always a matter of convenience. Full immersion is required for scriptural baptism. So, no, it's not convenient when water is not available. But you know what? Jesus didn't call us to a life of convenience. He called us to a life of obedience. And so that's why we don't, you know, when it comes to our church membership, that's why we just don't simply mail it in or sign up over the internet. Because it's not a matter of convenience. So Jesus gave us an example of scriptural baptism. Uh, we also see the example of Philip and the Ethiopian. It's Acts chapter 8. We find that Philip has led this traveling Ethiopian eunuch to Christ. And in verse 36 of chapter 8, it says, As they were traveling down the road, they came to some water. The eunuch said, Look, there's water. What would keep me from being baptized? Now, you've got to understand, this guy was the treasurer of the queen of Ethiopia. So he had resources. He had his own drinking water. He probably even had bathing water. But he asked to be baptized, to be immersed in a body of water, not sprinkled with a cup of drinking water. Verse 38 says, both Philip and the eunuch went down into the water and he baptized him. In other words, he was immersed with water by Philip. Verse 39 says that they came up out of the water. So if they've been in the water, came up out of the water, immersion. You get the full picture there. So we have an example of Jesus being baptized by John the Baptist. We have the example of the Ethiopian eunuch being baptized by Philip. We also find examples in church history uh, from the early church. Now, baptism by immersion was obviously practiced by the first century church. I mean, we just saw an example of that from Acts. But it was originally practiced in every branch and sect of the early Christian church. See, baptism by sprinkling or by pouring initially began to be used as a way to baptize the sick or the bedridden. Uh, but immersion was always the preferred method. In fact, many founders and leaders of uh, denominations that now practice sprinkling in their writings have acknowledged immersion as the scriptural method, the biblical method of, of baptism. Uh, George Whitfield an Anglican turned Methodist. In fact, he was an evangelist who was largely responsible for the first great awakening, great spiritual awakening in America. He and his writings acknowledged uh, immersion as the preferred method. Uh, William John Coneybear and J.S. Housen, who are 19th century Episcopal church leaders, they acknowledged that immersion was the preferred method. John Calvin, if you've read your church history, you know, in the 16th century, he was the, uh, the leader of that branch of the Reformation that eventually gave rise to the Presbyterian Church. In his writings, acknowledged immersion is the scriptural form of baptism. Martin Luther, for whom the Lutheran Church is named, acknowledged in his writings that immersion is the biblical form of baptism. Now, to be perfectly fair, there are some of these denominations that will baptize you by immersion if you ask. But even Roman Catholics, as late as the 13th century, practiced immersion. 
But it was really during the Dark Ages that the practice of immersion uh, faded from practice in the Catholic Church because, according to some writings, it was, in fact, a matter of inconvenience. But baptism is meant to be by immersion. No, it's not always convenient, but it is God's chosen method. Now, why do we insist that it's by immersion? Well, it's the original language in the Bible that really tells us that. Um, the word that's, that's in English that we, uh, that we have, the word baptize, it's really an untranslated word, okay? Uh, in the Greek, it means to immerse, okay? Now, here's the problem. When King James I commissioned the, uh, the, the translation of the Bible into English, the Bible which in 1611 was published and became known as the King James Version, the translators of that Bible had a dilemma on their hands. They came to that Greek word, baptizo, which means to immerse. It's a common everyday word in the Greek that, I mean, it describes things as mundane as washing dishes. But the problem was they couldn't translate it as immerse because the king, you know, the guy who had commissioned the translation of the Bible, that was not his preferred method, okay? His preferred practice was sprinkling. Oh, but on the other hand, they couldn't translate baptizo as sprinkling because, hey, they'd be the laughingstock of anybody that actually understood Greek. So here's what they did. They made up a word, baptize. In other words, the translators of the King James Version completely copped out. You see, the words that mean to sprinkle or to pour in the Greek language, they're never translated as baptize in the Bible. Well, with regard to baptism, the scriptures only have that one word. Baptizo means to immerse, to, to dip, or yes, uh, to put it more colloquially, to dunk under the water. So that's the method of baptism. That's clear. It's immersion. I want to also talk about the meaning of baptism this morning. The meaning of baptism, because the meaning of baptism and the method of baptism, they're actually interwoven. You see, if you change the method, you destroy the meaning, because the two are bound together. All right then, Eric, so what does baptism really mean? Well, baptism is a ceremony that pictures several things, okay? First of all, baptism pictures redemption. It pictures redemption. Turn over to that other passage, Romans chapter 6. Romans chapter 6, we're going to read verses 4 through 11 together. And in that passage, uh, the Apostle Paul, writing to the Roman Christians, you know, describes uh, this as a symbol of Christ's death, his burial, his resurrection. But listen to what Paul says in Romans chapter 6, beginning in verse 4. He says, Therefore, we were buried with him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, so we too may walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in the likeness of his death, we will certainly also be in the likeness of his resurrection. For we know that our old self was crucified with him so that the body ruled by sin might be rendered powerless so that we may no longer be enslaved to sin. And since a person who has died is free from sin. 
You see, the big idea behind this passage in Romans chapter 6 is that the believers, the, the, the believers that he's writing to, really all believers, are united to Christ in his death and resurrection. And that union with Christ is illustrated by the ordinance of baptism. You know, that person being baptized goes down under the water and then rises back up. Well, since baptism by immersion is a picture of Christ's death, his burial, and resurrection, that's why we don't change the method. Because changing the method changes the picture. Changing the picture changes the meaning. Uh, two or three months back, I came across a bunch of old, old Beach Street Church directories. And boy, it was fun to look through, through those and see some pictures of y'all, especially some of you men who actually still had hair back then. Um, <laughs> hey, I get it though. I mean, look, the struggle is real, all right? A lot of you have never seen a picture of my family, though. Now, say that I, you know, I always carry a, a family picture in my wallet, or I've always got one on my smartphone. And uh, when you ask to see a picture of my family, I pull out my wallet, I show you the picture, and it's a picture of a brand new motorboat. You're like, wait a second. That's your family? I'd say no, but any picture will do. You see, that sounds ridiculous to you and I. But when you change the picture, you change the meaning. So let me ask you this. What is the message of the gospel? See, we actually find the answer to that question in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Paul writing to the church at Corinth in verses 3 through 4 says that basically the gospel is this. I mean, he encapsulates it in, in one statement that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the scripture. And so that's what the ceremony of baptism signifies. It's our identification with the Lord, with his church, with his saving gospel. Baptism preaches the gospel of redemption. Baptism is a picture of redemption. Also, baptism is a picture of replacement. A picture of replacement. Baptism pictures the death of self. Baptism is a funeral for the old man. So when I was baptized, it was symbolic of the fact that the old Eric was gone. His sin nature was dead. He had received a new Christ nature. As Peter says, we become partakers of the divine nature. So my old self is gone. It's like the song that Mercy Me sang some years ago that was so popular. Uh, so long, self. Well, it's been fun, but I found somebody else. So long, self. There's just no room for two, so you are going to have to move. So long, self. Don't take this wrong, but you are wrong for me. Farewell. That's the death of self. If you've ever experienced the funeral of self, then you know that the only mourner at that funeral was the devil. He hated to see the old you die. So baptism pictures redemption. Baptism pictures replacement. Baptism also pictures resurrection. Now, it not only pictures the resurrection of Christ, but our resurrection with him. Romans chapter 6 verse 4 says that we are raised to walk in newness of life. The picture of baptism, folks, it's a whole lot more than just submersion. 
Okay, with submersion, you might not come back up. With immersion, you're buried, then you're raised up just as Christ was raised from the dead. So baptism pictures both Christ's resurrection and your resurrection. But there's a fourth thing that baptism pictures. Baptism pictures reunion. You see, there's, a, there's another sort of resurrection on display here that's portrayed by baptism. Yes, baptism does picture Calvary. It pictures Easter. But it even pictures the second coming of Jesus. I mean, just as I came up out of the water, one day my physical body is going to rise up out of the grave at Christ's return. And when that time comes, we will not only stand face to face with Jesus, but think about it. We're going to be reunited with all of those loved ones in the faith who have gone before us. It's a picture of reunion. So we've examined the method of baptism. We've examined the meaning of baptism and talked about how those two are intertwined. Uh, here's the third thing about baptism. The motive for baptism. Why should someone want to be baptized? Well, there's a threefold motive for baptism. The first one is this, that there is a master to confess. A master to confess. Baptism is a way of you identifying to the world that you are a follower of Jesus. That he is your savior, your Lord, and your master. Now in church we often like to speak about making a profession of faith. And oftentimes we'll equate that with you know, somebody walking down an aisle during an invitation time at the end of the service. But in the New Testament the profession of faith was actually made by following the Lord in baptism. That was the profession of faith. And in so doing, the believer was stating to the church and to the world, I believe in Jesus Christ. I identify myself with his death, with his burial, with his resurrection. I am not ashamed of Jesus, of his gospel, of his church. I am not afraid to be counted. Many of you guys uh, wear a wedding band. Maybe something s simple like mine, just a, a plain gold band. But let me ask you, does wearing this gold band actually make you married? No, of course not. Now, does taking it off actually make you unmarried? Of course not. You see, wearing my wedding band tells the world that I'm not ashamed of Christy. In fact, quite the opposite. It tells the world that I love her so much that I have committed my life to her. I'm actually very proud to have such a godly wife who's been with me for 32 and a half years. Well, this ring is an emblem of that permanent relationship that we've established. It tells people that I belong to her. Likewise, baptism is an emblem that says you are not ashamed to call Jesus your master. So the first motive for wanting to be baptized, you have a master to confess. Here's the second motive. The second motive is a message to convey. A message to convey. In a sense, baptism really preaches the gospel without you really even having to say a word because it's a picture of the gospel. 
I mean, if, if you've truly placed your faith and your trust in Christ, then you, my friend, are walking in new life. And if you're, if you're truly walking in new life, then, I mean, wouldn't you want to be able to preach that nonverbal sermon to your friends and to, to your loved ones? I mean, who wouldn't want to give that testimony if God has truly saved them? And if you don't want to stand and identify with, with Christ, well, then maybe it's time to take a spiritual self-examination. Make sure that your faith is real. I mean, if you are embarrassed to convey to the world the message that Jesus is your master, I mean, is your faith even really real? I mean, Jesus said in Matthew chapter 10, everyone who will acknowledge me before others, I will acknowledge him before my Father in heaven. But whoever denies me before others, I will also deny him before my Father in heaven. So the first motive for baptism is you have a master to confess. The second motive, there is a message to convey. Here's your third motive. There is a mandate to complete. A mandate to complete. Now, first of all, there's a mandate to us personally. We see that in the form of Jesus' own example. Uh, we see Jesus baptized, Matthew chapter 3, Luke chapter 3. Uh, he told those who professed his name to follow his example as evidence that their hearts had changed. That's Acts chapter 8, verse 16, Acts 19, 5. So there's that mandate. But then there's other, that other mandate that we actually started the message with from Matthew chapter 28, a mandate to baptize others. Now, let me ask you this question. If I lay dying, if you were with me in the, in the hospital room and, I, and I'm about to breathe out my last breath, don't you think there might be some significance to my final words? If you're a film buff, you might remember the classic film from 1941, Citizen Kane, when a reporter was assigned the task of, of uh, deciphering this newspaper magnate, uh, Charles Foster Kane's dying words, the investigation, and it began to gradually reveal the, the fascinating portrait of a, of a very complex man who had risen from obscurity to a place of great prominence and great influence. And as this reporter began to piece together the fragments of Kane's life, he feared that he might never penetrate the mystery of the elusive man's final word, Rosebud. What? Rosebud? Are you kidding me? Rosebud? They go through the entire film trying to figure out what Rosebud is all about. What does it mean? Now, why does that story resonate with us? Well, because we often look for meaning in final words. Well, Jesus' last words in the Gospel of Matthew were his instructions to go and to teach and to baptize. He was concluding his earthly ministry. So what Jesus had to say must have had some significance. And let's not minimize what Jesus maximized. It was important to him, so it should be important to us. Jesus told us in John 14, 5, if you love me, keep my commandments. Now, before we go any further in our discussion of this topic, I, I want you to understand something, church. Baptism 
is not necessary for salvation. All right? Let me say it again. Baptism is not necessary for salvation. Now, we all have brothers and sisters in the Church of Christ who would probably argue that point with us. And one of the scriptures that they use to back up their point of view is Acts chapter 2, verse 38. You remember Acts chapter 2, Pentecost, uh, the Holy Spirit is poured out. 3,000 people are saved that day. And Peter, preaching in Acts chapter 2, says in verse 38, Repent and be baptized, each of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. See, their position is that Peter was saying that you must be baptized in order to be justified with God, to have forgiveness of sin. So what is that verse really saying? I mean, is it saying repent for the forgiveness of sin? Is it saying be baptized for the forgiveness of sin? Or is it saying both? Well, one thing that you need to remember about the Bible is that the Bible is the infallible word of God. And because it's infallible, it does not contradict itself. Now, if you'll just indulge me for, for, for just a minute, I'm gonna chase a theological rabbit here for a sec. So don't, don't zone out on me, because this is, this is important stuff. One of the key overarching principles of the art of biblical interpretation is called the analogy of scripture. Okay, it's not important that you remember the analogy of Scripture. Just remember what it, what it means. Basically, the analogy of Scripture means this. It means that we interpret a passage of Scripture in light of the whole Bible. We don't interpret a verse of Scripture in isolation from the rest of it. The analogy of Scripture teaches us that we allow passages that are unclear to be interpreted in light of passages that speak to the same subject, which are clear. Uh, Charles Hodge, who was a 19th century theologian, once wrote, no one book of scripture can be understood by itself any more than any one part of a tree or member of the body can be understood without reference to the whole of which it is part. Blaise Pascal, a 17th century uh, mathematician, philosopher, theologian, he wrote, he who will give the meaning of scripture and does not take it from scripture is the enemy of scripture. So, if a verse of Scripture is interpreted in isolation from the rest of the Bible, and you come to an interpretation that is contradictory to the other Scriptures in the Bible that speak to the same thing, you are forced to conclude one of two things. You either will conclude that the Bible is not inerrant, that it is fallible, that it does contradict itself, or you must conclude that you are errant in your interpretation. You see, not only does the baptism for salvation interpretation of that scripture contradict what the rest of the New Testament says about what's necessary for salvation, that it's by grace alone, through faith alone, and not by works, including baptism, but it also comes at a misunderstanding of the original Greek text. So when Peter says, repent and be baptized for the forgiveness of sin, that preposition in the English for, it actually comes from a little Greek word, three letters, ace. Ace in this context means in view of the fact. Okay, it doesn't mean in order to, it means because of, in view of the fact. So the more literal reading of that passage is in view of the fact that you have repented and been forgiven, be baptized. 
Here's another very important principle in uh, biblical interpretation, and that is the matter of context. Context. Both historical and cultural context, but also, also literary context. When you read a verse of Scripture, read it in the context of the verses that surround it and, and the chapter that contains it. Maybe the whole book or the whole epistle that you find it in. Literary context is so important to discovering meaning. So if you're going to interpret Acts 2.38 correctly, you have to read it in context. Interpret it in light of the surrounding passage. Well, guess what? Three verses later, Acts 2.41, it says, those who accepted his message were baptized. Now, I, I want you to note what's going on here. Note the order of events. 3,000 people heard the gospel, believed the gospel message, and then they were baptized, the scripture says. In other words, only those people who believed were baptized. We see the exact same order in Acts chapter 16, the story of the Philippian jailer and his family. When they came to Christ, they believed and then they were baptized. So baptism is only for those people who have believed in Jesus. That's why here in the Baptist church, we often refer to it as believers baptism. Or once in a while, you might hear someone call it credo baptism. And since the Baptist distinctive is to baptize only those who have believed in Jesus, that's why we don't baptize infants. Because an infant is not capable of believing in Jesus. That's why it's called believer's baptism. We baptize those who have believed. Or, or think of it this way, okay? If baptism were necessary for salvation, then a man living in a desert can't be saved. If baptism were necessary for salvation, a guy in an airplane can't be saved. If baptism were necessary for salvation, that thief next to Jesus on the cross who said, remember me when you come into your kingdom? Well, he was lied to by Jesus when Jesus said, truly I tell you, today you'll be with me in paradise. See, when the thief asked Jesus that, Jesus didn't say, hey, sure thing, bud. Just hop down off that Roman cross. We'll get you dunked in some water and then you can join me in heaven. The Bible says, whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Not whosoever calls on the name of the Lord and happens to have a body of water nearby and a preacher of the appropriate denomination shall be saved. You see, baptism is the result of salvation. It's not a contributor to salvation, okay? Now, I've belabored that point a little bit too long, and the more you kick a dead horse, the more it stinks. So let me move on. No, it's not necessary for salvation, but baptism is necessary for discipleship. You see, when we accept Christ as Savior, the first thing that we should be doing in loving obedience to Jesus' command is to be baptized. It's a call to discipleship to obedience. It's a call to surrender your life to the teachings of Christ, to the Word of God. So being immersed indicates your desire to be immersed in the Word of God and in the will of God. And seeking God's will for your life, that's a natural byproduct of your baptism, of accepting Christ as Savior. And when you turn your life over to Christ, well, then you're entering into a life of service uh, uh, to God and to others. 
That, my friends, is discipleship. And baptism is necessary for discipleship. If we're going to walk closer with him, we need to be obedient to him. You ever wonder why, you know, maybe you're not growing as much spiritually as you would like? Maybe why you don't experience the power of God more in your life? You know, maybe you're asking God, God, please, teach me more. And God might be responding by saying, why? I've already showed you how important baptism is, and yet you refuse to obey. So why should I show you anything else? Friends, do you know that you know him? And if you truly know him, do you love him? Because if you love him, you want to keep his commandments. Make your public profession of faith. Thanks for listening to today's message. If you'd like to have a personal relationship with God, it's pretty simple. It's repent, believe, and receive. We acknowledge that we're all sinners who fall short, and we repent. That word means to change your mind about the way you've been living. Then you choose to believe in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ for you. And you receive by faith God's gift of forgiveness, salvation, and eternal life. If you don't have a church home, we'd love to have you join us at Beach Street. Small group Bible study begins at 9.30 on Sundays, followed by worship at 10.45. There's a midweek Bible study on Wednesdays at 6. You'll find us at the corner of 6th and Beach Street in downtown Texarkana. And for more info, visit our website at beachstreetfbc.org.